Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 23. The authority of Jesus' question. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. The parable of the two sons. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are, coming, are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Father, that you are pleased to reveal yourself to us in your Son. And we pray, Father, as we reflect now on him and his claim to king be a king, we pray, Father, that by your Spirit you would help us to understand and respond rightly to what he says. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm pretty sure that there's one fear that is common to all of us. There's one fear that I'm sure all of us have felt from time to time, perhaps even day to day, and it is the fear of rejection. Perhaps some of our earliest memories of those are those of times in the playground where we're rejected from a group game of tag or bulldog or whatever, uh, depending on your era. Uh, if you're like me, you would have asked people out on a date only to be rejected several times. And uh, you know that kind of crushing feeling that comes from being rejected. And perhaps more seriously, a lot of us will know that all too real, uh, that, that experience will be all too real for us as we found ourselves on the wrong side of the majority. And we find that stinging feeling of rejection come across us. And that fear of rejection is so strong that we can end up changing our behaviors 
to kind of avoid it. Many of us, I know, will change, myself included, change the way we speak to fit in better, to not run the risk of feeling that feeling of rejection. Perhaps the way we conduct ourselves at work changes so that we feel accepted uh, by those uh, around us. And perhaps we find ourselves not really being ourselves because we don't want to be rejected. And of course, for the Christian, that risk of rejection only increases, doesn't it? Many of us, uh, many in our culture today, think we're weird uh, because of our beliefs. Some even think that actually the beliefs that Jesus teaches are dangerous. And because of that, many will resist what uh, the Bible says and also reject the people who go along with it. And so, I don't know if you find yourself in this position, I certainly have, where you come along on a Sunday, you get very excited about what you hear from Jesus. But as you go out into the world, into the workplace, into the office, the building site, you start to be like everyone else. And perhaps some of us here this morning are looking into the Christian claims for the first time or thinking more seriously about Jesus. And this, for us, is a bit of a sticking point because unless we can... We we know that becoming a Christian will mean uh, having those weird looks, having people question what we've done. And because of that fear of rejection, we hold off making a choice. But there's one thing, isn't there, that helps with the fear of rejection. And that is knowing why rejection happens. Imagine a scenario for me. Imagine you start noticing your friends avoiding you. You um, hear of WhatsApp groups that you're not part of. Uh, As you go up to some of your friends, you notice they stop speaking. That's always a sign they're speaking about you. And you think to yourself, what have I done? Why are they rejecting me? And you start to examine all the things you've done to to see whether actually there's something that you've uh, missed and has given them cause to reject you. Then it rolls around to your birthday. And you go home, you switch on the hallway light, and suddenly you're greeted by all your friends who shout, surprise! And you realize that the very reason they're rejecting you is because they were planning this party. And you think to yourself, I shouldn't have taken it so personally. It's a silly example, isn't it? But you see the point. Once you understand why rejection happens, you can understand how to deal with it. And this passage this morning has something of that effect, and I pray it will, with us. Uh, The subject uh, is the subject of rejection. But more importantly, it's why rejection happens. And the reason I think Matthew gives us this is because he's writing to the early church. He shows us why Jesus is rejected, but he does so to show us why we, as his followers, will be rejected. And he's not promising that that rejection won't hurt, that it won't happen, but he is showing us why it's happening and why you and me need not be surprised. We're going to see two things. First of all, rejection is not rational. And secondly, rejection is not reasonable. See, rejection is not rational. See, at this point, Jesus 
has caused a bit of a stir, to say the least, in the temple. Uh, Last week, we saw, didn't we, how Jesus came into Jerusalem unashamedly uh, confessing himself to be the King, the Messiah. And as he walked into the temple, this ancient religious place, the holiest place you can imagine, he starts turning over the tables and the chairs, previewing the judgment and the anger that uh, he, he felt towards religious hypocrisy. And surprise, surprise, the religious establishment uh, pop up in verse 23, and they ask him, what is he doing? They say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? You know, in today's language, it's the question, who do you think you are? What are you doing coming in here, pretending to be king and turning over the tables? Now, I wonder at this point, what would you expect Jesus to say? They ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? What do you expect Jesus to say? I don't know about you. I expect Jesus to say, well, my father gave me this authority. He does say that in other places. You expect that here. Or you might expect him to say, have you not read? It is written. And then give us an Old Testament quote that just hits uh, their objection straight on. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't do those things. Look at what he does instead. He He asks a question in verse 25. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? See, John um, the Baptist, he's speaking about here, and he says, John the Baptist, where did he get his authority from? Did he get it from God? As in, was he divine? Was he God commissioned? Uh, Was his ministry divine? Or is it from this world? Is it something that he kind of did. And that puts them them in a catch-22 situation. In verse 25, we read uh, that they discussed it amongst themselves, and they say, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, and they hold that John was a prophet. Do you see the point? If they say John the Baptist was from heaven, that God gave him this work, Jesus will ask, well, why didn't you believe him? Because John the Baptist's ministry was all about pointing to Jesus. But on the other hand, if they say, actually, John the Baptist wasn't from God, he wasn't a prophet, well, actually, the crowd will will go for them. In another gospel, we're told that they're frightened of being stoned. And so they fudge an answer in verse 27. They just say, "We we do not know. But why does Jesus ask this question? Why doesn't Jesus just answer the question by saying, it is written, or my Father gave me this authority? Well, I think it's because he wants us to see what causes this rejection. Why it is they are rejecting. Why it is they're saying, we do not know. See, they're not saying, we do not know because there's not enough evidence or because there's not been enough signs, or because Jesus has not been clear enough. See, Jesus asking this question draws out the fact that they will not, it's not actually about evidence. It's not actually about signs. It's not actually about clarity. It really is actually because they don't want him to be king. See, we're clued into their objection, aren't we? Because 
we're told that they ask the question, by what authority are you doing these things? And these guys were the authority of the day. I mean, bishops today, uh, people still listen to bishops and things, but they're not kind of authority figures in the same way as these guys would. They would have had authority over um, the political sphere as well as the religious. They wielded huge authority. But Jesus has come into Jerusalem on a donkey, declaring himself to be king. And that is an affront to their authority. It's not that Jesus is being unfair when he doesn't answer their question on their terms. It's not the first time they've encountered him. He's spoken to them lots and lots. He's not being evasive as if questions aren't allowed. If you're here asking questions, please do. Um, you're very, uh, that's what we like to, to, to help people with. But he is now exposing what is in their heart. No amount of evidence, no amount of uh, science is going to change their hearts. They just don't want Jesus to be king. We um, pride ourselves, don't we, as a culture on us being neutral observers. We think often that we interpret the facts without any bias. We say things like we follow the science, as if that's kind of, you know, there's not an opinion we can have about that. But actually, this reminds us, doesn't it, that we're not neutral when it comes to Jesus. All of us, to use the language of our day, have an unconscious bias towards Jesus not being king. Because there's a part of us that likes to grip hold of the crown for ourselves, that likes to stay on our own personal thrones. Uh, the great reformer, Martin Luther, uh, he said uh, when he was looking at Romans and looking at God's um, uh, declaration of who he is and how he should live, he said this, love God? Sometimes I hate him. Or to bring it more up to date, Tears for Fears said this, I think in the 1980s, which is not very up to date, I know. Everybody wants to rule the world. It's true, isn't it? All of us have that part of us that doesn't want Jesus to be king of our hearts, doesn't want Jesus to be the king of the universe, because he's a threat then to our own autonomy and our own personal thrones. And that doesn't mean we sort of, if people ever ask us questions, we kind of have to not answer them or we have to be overly suspicious at their motivations. But this is helping us to see what is really going on as the gospel of Jesus goes out. Because the gospel is not just some advice. It's not just someone's opinion. It is no less a declaration of Jesus' kingship. At the end of this gospel, Jesus will come to the disciples and he says this, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, of course, he uses that authority, uh, as we heard last week, in a gentle, in a humble way. It is gloriously wonderful to have Jesus as king. But we can't escape the fact that that is an affront to our own personal empires. And because of that, as we take this message out, we need to realize that it's not all going to be rational. There will be people who reject just because, like us, we don't want to hear Jesus is king. 
See, when we encounter that rejection, it can be very easy to think, oh, there must be a problem with the evidence. Or there must be a problem uh, with um, what Jesus has said or how he's done it. Or we think to ourselves, there must be a problem with me, and we can't discount that possibility. But actually, the greater problem is the problem of the heart. Because in our hearts, we wield a desire for us to be king and Jesus not to be. Now, that probably feels very pessimistic, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, what does that mean? Is it just rejection, rejection, rejection? But secondly, we see actually something further happens uh, in the second point. Rejection is not reasonable. Because here Jesus uh, goes on to speak about three parables. Um, There's too much to look at this week, so Mike is going to take us through the second two parables next week. But in this first parable, we meet two sons. Uh, One of them is asked to go and work out in the vineyard, and he refuses, but later changes his mind. And the second son uh, says, yes, I'll do it, but then later doesn't. As you can imagine, can't you, a father today with two teenage sons. He's going off uh, abroad uh, for business on Friday, and his daughter needs picking up from her primary school. And he says to his first teenage son, he says, would you mind picking up your, daughter, uh, your sister rather, uh, from school on Friday? And the son says, no way, I'm not doing it. The father's a bit put out, but he goes to the second son and says, will you pick up your sister from school on Friday? And the second son says, of course, father, I'll do it. Don't worry. Friday rolls round, and the father receives a phone call from the school, and they say, we found your daughter hanging around by the gate. No one's here to pick her up. And as they're speaking to the father, suddenly they hear at someone else's voice. And it turns out it's the older brother who's come to pick up his sister. And the question in verse 31, the answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? Which of the two did his fa- what his father wanted? Well, the first son refused, but actually did it after he changed his mind. The second son, oh, here's a diagram, <laughs> said, yes, I'll do it but didn't actually do it. And Jesus uses this to show us that what counts in his kingdom is not kind of lip service, but actually whether we actually follow up and do uh, what he asks of us. Now, we must hear this right. This is not saying that our moral performance means that uh, we get into God's good books. It's not saying that it comes down to what we do. Uh, Rather, notice the first son has done something gravely wrong. He said no to his father. Now, you need to remember this is in a Middle Eastern context. Showing honor to your parents is paramount. And so this son does something hugely shocking here. He does something wrong. But then he later changes his mind. And the point here is that those who are in Jesus' kingdom are those who do those who change their mind, those who see who Jesus is and make the right call. Verse 31 goes on, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. For John came to show the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. 
but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. Now, tax collectors, we've probably heard this before, but were hated, absolutely hated. They were pretty rich, uh, and they worked for the Romans, the occupying forces. I was trying to think of an equivalent today, I guess something like a double agent in World War II, but maybe something a bit like uh, the tax evaders uh, we, all, um, we all sort of hate, uh, people who don't pay their fair share of tax. It's that kind of idea here. Uh, prostitutes were the complete underclass. They were there to provide a service, often for the Romans, but also others. I guess the modern equivalent today is uh, workers in the porn industry, people who are uh, nameless, a complete underclass, not valued. And yet, Jesus says, they're first in the queue. They're going ahead of you religious leaders. See, Jesus is saying, if you want to see the people who are going into the kingdom of heaven, don't be looking in the cathedrals. Don't be looking in the churches. Be looking in the tax havens, in the red light districts. See, they're the ones who are going into the kingdom. Why is that? Well, he's not saying, look, tax collectors are really okay. Give them a break. They didn't know what they were doing. He's not saying that prostitution is fine. But he is saying they have done one thing right. They've turned, they've changed their mind, and they've believed. So you can imagine, can't you, a young prostitute, she hears of crowds going out to John the Baptist, and she thinks to herself, I'll go and see what's happening. Perhaps she thinks there may be a chance for business. And she hears John the Baptist talking about this idea of repentance, and the kingdom of heaven coming. And her head tilts down. She feels shame at her profession. She thinks, it's not for me. But then she sees John the Baptist criticizing the religious establishment. Calls them a brood of vipers, ones who are paying lip service, but their hearts are not changing. And then he says, all who come baptized, who turn their minds, are part of this kingdom. And her heart melts as she hears this offer. So you can imagine, can't you, just uh, what that did uh, to people like her. But on the other hand, this religious establishment, the very people who taught the Old Testament, which speaks of the coming of Jesus, when Jesus came as a king into his temple, they resisted him. They refused him. They rejected him. Now, what are we meant to do with this? Well, there is, of course, a warning here, isn't there, of not paying lip service to God. God's not tricked by kind of magic words where we can say the right things, but he doesn't really see our hearts. That, I guess, is an application. But actually, I think this is much more encouraging for us than necessarily a warning. See, Matthew's writing this gospel we think quite late. Um, he's the only gospel that mentions the church twice. And so he's writing to the early church. And the thing is, the early church was made up of these very people, tax collectors and prostitutes and the underclass. See, even Matthew, uh, people think, possibly is Levi, the tax collector in this gospel, who's writing this. 
And you can imagine, can't you, that church meeting in a house of prostitutes, slaves, people who are nothing in the eyes of society. And they look out their window and they see this huge temple with all its majesty, with all its grandeur, with all its religious establishment and power. And they think to themselves, perhaps we got it wrong. Who are we meeting in this little house? Uh, There's a guy writing in the second century called Celsus, um, and uh, he's writing a critique of Christianity. It's fascinating to read. Uh, A lot of it is very contemporary. And he says this, some very few individuals who are considered Christians of the more intelligent class make objections against the doctrine of Jesus. Uh, I think I've written that wrong, actually. He's basically said that uh, no one clever makes... um, basically makes uh, objections, I think. I think that's what he's saying. But here's the key point. It is only, only foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children. He is what you might call a snob in the second century. He's basically saying Christianity isn't for the intelligent. It's only for the foolish, the low individuals people who can't think, slaves, women, yes, he's very sexist, and children. And and that was kind of the second century narrative against Christians, that look at these people, they're they're nothing. We're the guys who have got all the power. And you can imagine, can't you, that actually that affected the early church. Maybe they think to themselves, maybe we are not very powerful, maybe we are outdated, maybe we should be with the majority. Maybe we are being unreasonable by holding on to this promise of Jesus. But actually, Jesus is showing us here that what counts in his kingdom is not outward signs of power, not amazing words that people say, not lip service to God, not demonstrations of piety to be shown off, but whether we change our minds and we cling to Jesus for salvation. As we finish, we remember, don't we, that we will inevitably face rejection, and rejection's hard, it's, it's scary, and lots of us uh, try and avoid it. But actually, we need to understand why rejection happens. It's not because of uh, rationality, it's not because there's any problem with Jesus, but because of our hearts and our desire to be king. And that rejection is not reasonable. Actually, the reasonable thing is to turn to trust Jesus when he comes. And as we finish, I want to leave us with this question, who do we fear? Because Jesus is declared to be king, and he will be with his people. He promises at the end of this gospel, I will be with you to the very end of the age. And he also warns us that there will be rejection, there will be difficult times if we cling to him. But wonderfully, as this text reminds us, there will be those who turn. There will be the prostitutes. There will be the tax collectors. There will be, in Celsus's words, the nothings of this age who turn, who grip hold of Jesus and are brought into the kingdom. Let's pray.
I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Father, lead us not into the temptation, we pray, of paying lip service to Jesus. Help us, Father, to be like these uh, he models here, as those who turn, who change our minds, who believe. And please give us confidence, we pray, as this message is often rejected. Please give us great confidence that Jesus is really who he says he is and can be trusted. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.